And welcome to the Dicer Screen Podcast. I'm oh. Randy. Oh, yeah. And that's Mike over there, Howling at the Moon. Allegedly. Allegedly. Allegedly, Mike. You're, we're not sure, but it is allegedly Mike, and that's I, what we're going to work with. I've been accused of it. All right. And you can expect no less from the podcast that brings you... <laughs> oh, oh! you're going to expect no less from the unsupervised closet <sighs> of gaming podcasts. And you were a chaotic, neutral wizard, and you just wanted a familiar, and you thought you lucked out when you were all the 15, and you get a chaotic, evil, little shit who just wants to murder and set everything on fire. Like a miniature version of the Joker that you're responsible for. <sighs> Yeah, you can't leave us unsupervised. Some people just want to watch the world burn. And Roast some people have over. that as a house pet. Yep. So. And, yeah, there you go. That's us. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, useful, but not trustworthy. That's us. Right on. And so <laughs> we're going to start out the show tonight, uh, or today. It could be day, yeah. I guess that's the thing. We're going to start out the show talking about our last episode where we... Uh, Got a little pushback on some of our reviews on Fantasy Wargaming. And we'll get into some of those in a minute. But uh, the things we wanted to cover about that that we didn't quite uh, cinch up at the end. Because we were kind of getting a little low on time. Was that uh, I think that we were a little uh, a little light-handed on it. We were fair because I think at the end, here we here at the Dice of Screaming believe that if you got a product like that into print at that time, that's a mark of heroism. Yeah, to some degree, no matter what else happens, no matter what transpires, uh, in that early era, if you accomplished getting a book into print, uh, you had already done something that comparatively few people had done at the time. There were just a small number of companies that were regularly producing material, uh, one of them being Traveler, Mm -hmm. uh, another being TSR, uh, and I believe... Uh, circa 1981, uh, the people at Chaosium. Yeah, they'd had uh, RuneQuest out and, for a couple years. And RuneQuest, uh, you know, had made its debut. Yeah, it was their uh, maiden voyage. But it was considered a really amazing thing to, you know, finally make it into print. A lot of people never made it off the ground. Yeah, so, and, you know, uh, there's... we got to give them that. But there's a lot of things that... Uh, there's just not a lot good to say about it other than that. I mean, there's parts of it that we can go into, but hey, yeah. there is a guy who called in. His name is Jason, and he has some opinions on it. So we're going to turn it over to him for a minute, let him speak about some of these uh, allegations that have been made in our name. <laughs> oh, yes. And uh, we'll get back to that. So take it away, Jason. Wow, that was a pretty harsh review of Fantasy Wargaming. I didn't have that one back in the day, so I have ordered it so I can read it and see what I think. But, but you know, I don't think it's that different from other things that came out during that period. And I refer you to, to the complete works of Zoran Greystar, book one, by Stephen or Steve Schriff and Keller Autumn. If you haven't read that, that's another alternate D&D system. Now, this one came out in 84. That's you know, really complicated and, you know, has some very obtuse things in it. So I, I don't think fantasy wargaming is alone in, in this where people are trying to come up with a, a better mousetrap and the simulationists and whatnot, you know, there are people out there that, that do like this sort of thing. Um, 
Now, is that saying it's a system I want to run? No, not at all. But I, I do think, you know, it was, I do think it was representative of the time and some of the efforts. Now, there are also efforts in the other direction. Look at, um, was it Crimson Cutlass, the, you know, pirate game that could be used for everything else. You know, Crimson Cutlass, you can still find at better game sales that you can find on Drive RPG. But Crimson Cutlass now, if you buy the Omnibus on Drive Through, it's like 1,500 pages. But that's a super simple system that came out in like 79. But, you know, it shows another approach towards role playing. You know, people are looking for what's the right way to go. And, the, you know, your Crimson Cutlass system is much more what I would, I would run with, with the simpler, more narrative kind of game. But, you know, I, I think that there were people, especially when you're looking at Cambridge and stuff, there are people that, you know, probably did play this. You know, how, how often they played it, who knows. But but I bet you as many as these sold, people did try to play it. And, you know, a couple of people no doubt got through a few sessions before they moved on. Lest I come off too harsh on you guys, that is not my intent. I But I, I definitely think we need to, I mean, you guys were around back then. You, you remember this. Um, you, you know, I mean, look at Rollmaster. You know, Rollmaster started peeking its out eyes out in the, the early um, you know, eighties and and that was nothing but adding more complexity to combat systems, right? Actually Rollmaster works really well. It's just front loaded. But it well it works really well if you have all the if each player has the combat sheets in front of them, the critical sheets in front of them so they're not paging through the book. But you know, complexity was something other people were looking at as well. So so we definitely need to take it at its you you, you know at the histor it's a it's a great historical ca- um, snapshot of the time, right? And, and I think that's how we look at these things, or historical snapshots of the time. And, and But I do appreciate you reviewing it and other things like it. I look forward to your next episode. All right. Hey, well, yeah, um, I'm going to disagree with you just about on every turn on that one. Um, Ardwin Grimoire, first off, I'm going to say that as alternate settings, Ardwin Grimoire was out way before Fantasy Wargaming. And as for complex systems, yeah, Dragon Quest and Rollmaster were starting to come out at that time. But I think also, like, systems like... Well, I feel... I, I cannot speak perfectly for Dragon Quest uh, as more complex systems. Sure. But I am going to speak to Rollmaster, which, despite its immense complex- complexity, the publication thereof was incredibly well organized. Yes. Uh, which made it accessible and usable. Yep. It didn't make it easy... But it did make it index-worthy, where you could you could work with it. Uh, whereas right. you'll it, quickly notice that with the fantasy wargaming, which we discussed, uh, complexity is not so much its issue uh, as a really apocryphal organization. Yeah, and Bullmaster was a much better example. Yeah, and it came with a more accessible world than just medieval fantasy. And if you wanted that, yes. Harn, which would come out in eighty-three, eighty-four was a much better, uh, which was a first, originally offered as a uh, diversionary world or uh, new campaign, if you want. Which, by the way, we'll Perdini. be covering the Harn uh, campaign setting yeah. in the near future. That, that you know, that that's an augury-esque. A foretelling of the future. Yes. Has that, that is foreshadowed a, our podcast. It's a dream of a dream. Mm. Uh, it, it'll happen one day. We're totally doing Harn, because that's that's a fine example. Yeah, and so there was Harn, and also simpler systems, I mean, Tunnels and Trolls, uh, which is 
talked about in the rules. Well, I liked Jason's point about uh, like if the divergent pathways, uh, where you yeah, had you had groups people of people who were aiming for this intense complexity, and then you had other groups of people who were very validly aiming for reduced complexity, for ease right. of play, uh, and for approachability. Mm. Uh, that those two radically different mindsets for gameplay, uh, they make an interesting counterpoint. And he mentioned some terrific examples of both at that time period. Sure, and also Traveler, and and was very revolutionary when it came out because the system was very simple, but the concepts behind it were very complex. And yeah, they opened up a, the plethora of science fiction gaming at now, that What time. was I said in that early episode about Traveler, which is like they, they proved they did as much with six-sided dice as any human being could possibly have achieved. Like they, yep. they got the most out of like, I have two dice. That's all I showed up with. Brother, you still got a game, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they they just worked miracles. With and them, so that, as far as playability goes, I mean, who's to say? Like, if you want more complexity, like with Rollmaster, sure. But there was also games like Chivalry and Sorcery, which I've met a few people play it, but. Wow, it's very complex, and I'm not really sure the effort is worth it when there's better and easier systems, but that's a preference on the gamer. Where we're coming off very hard, and I believe that the, this is the disconnect, is that when they put the name highest level of all fantasy wargaming, that's a high bar, and they failed in almost every measure. So it's <laughs> not anything other than a, a study in how not to do this. It was not very good. Almost every other game you compare to, perhaps Fatal, is better than Fantasy Wargaming. Yeah, I, I gotta say that uh, uh, while we did crow about its excellent historical accuracy, I mean, there is a wealth of knowledge in this book that can be harvested for making more realistic campaigns in medieval settings. Mm -hmm. I appreciate and respect the historical literacy and the metaphysical literacy that went into the making of the book. I do not respect the game theory and game design that went into it. Uh, I, I do not think it was created with an understanding of approachability. Uh, there was sort of, I think, an assumption right. that it was exclusively war gamers uh, and miniatures combatants that would eventually adapt and make use of this system. And most people who started to enter into the new world of fantasy role-playing games uh, were not miniatures war gamers to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the origin point back in the early 70s, yes, they were. Those were the first arrivals, the people who first made the conversion. But the new arrivals after 1980, that's, that was all that's a good. That's a really good point, I think, that comes in as like in the early uh, 70s, right there, 74, 75. If this book had been written about that time and then come out in 77, 78, it probably would have found a better market or at least a better reception. Yeah. Once you start getting into things like when Traveler came out and uh, the new D&D, AD&D books were coming out and they were even more approachable. Yeah, well, sorry. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but then you also start talking about, like, RuneQuest, and you got some other games out there that are starting to come out, which they made it more approachable. And, hey, speaking of that, one thing we didn't get into last week was 1981. Yeah, we were there because 
Call of Cthulhu reared its ugly head yeah. at that time. And now, hey... Uh, no, I, I didn't have any of Call of Cthulhu in 81. But by 85, we were gaming yeah. really regularly. Like, you know, Yeah, by 83, I had collected a fairly uh, decent amount. And I felt confident pulling it out for more than just Halloween games. And running total party kills. By Shoggoth. <laughs> yes, but it just keeps coming. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, they're running a Kickstarter. Man, like 10 minutes funded. Bam, 20000 right there. Yeah, that most impressive debut. You're just not getting the box set on this one. You're getting two of the supplements, three of the adventures, and one of the box sets of Shadows of Yog sothoth And if you ask me, thank goodness for Chaosium sticking it to the collector's market on eBay because for years the only way to get your hands on a copy of Yog sothoth a physical one was to pay three four hundred dollars yeah. now you can get Shadows of Yog sothoth for the price of, and get all that other stuff too wow um, Fragments of Fear the I, Asylum there was grumpiness apparently alright yeah, just to, to give the tiny tiny high-speed background there was some grumpiness over the fact that they were re-releasing all of this familiar old material in wonderful new books. Uh, you know, this material has not been released in decades. And uh, those who are ardent uh, DMs for Call of Cthulhu, and their players keep coming back to the table for it session after session, uh, have painstakingly acquired copies of these vintage books. Now, uh, there was... A lot of disgruntlement over the fact that the value of yeah, the vintage yeah. books has gone down. Well, you know what? I have zero empathy because I'm a huge believer in games getting played and players playing games. Okay, I they did the same thing at with the at the Mountains of Madness oh, uh, just last year, uh, earlier this year. Excuse me, not last year. Boy, it seems like, has it gone by that fast? Yeah. Anyway, well, good riddance. Yeah. Um, yeah, they did Mountains of Madness, and that's been out of print for years, and of course, bandy about. And they said people need to play this. This is one of our great one products. Of our best. Yeah, I mean those early modules uh, from Chaosium were fantastic and totally worth it. Yeah, but, because if you played Call of Cthulhu, and we'll keep this down to a dull roar, but we have to gush because one of the big things was is that if you had uh, played D and D at that time and you were ran across the monster, you just killed it. Call of Cthulhu was the first one to just steer you in the opposite direction. You're and right. Shadows of yogg sothoth that campaign really brings it home. Yeah, you can run roughshod over a few cultists, but that star spawn of Cthulhu in the swamps... Oh, spoiler alert. Yeah, he's going to screw you up if you just like going to go in guns blazing. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not in Call of Cthulhu. Your real goal is to avert the total outbreak of mass chaos, which means, in many cases, hunkering down with the clock ticking while you work the ancient spell to close the portal. And that, you're like, that was your mission, not, we kicked the big bad boss's butt. Well, you metaphysically kick its butt by closing the, the portal or, like, terminating access to the Elder Gods or something like that. But you don't just kick it in the butt. Yeah, and, the, be and the other thing was is that... No, all right, I'm not saying it can't be done. You can kick it in the butt. But that that comes with like a surcharge. <laughs> okay, yeah, like hitting Lady Demiestrico, <laughs> screw, excuse me, in the fanny with a fly swatter in Resident Evil Village. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's not going to end well. She's going to yeah. turn around and just power deep into the ground. But uh, to circle it back to like that era, 1981, uh, and Jason's point was that, uh, yeah, I, I actually am 
you know, I'm more in line agreeing with the... I, I know you may not, but uh, no, I yeah, feel like Jason different. hit some excellent points there. Well, as always, Jason hit some points. I just say that, you know, that Arduin Grimoire was probably the better example of how to do a divergent campaign. And sure, Rollmaster had its uh, fans right off the bat, but you just end up doing the same thing with D&D. You know, it's just a tep- uh, preference of taste, and that's yeah. really what it comes down Organizational to. Organizational and technical uh, awkwardness hampered fantasy wargaming, or wargaming yeah. as, a, as a publication so badly. It jumped off of me and hit you. Sorry. What? Oh, that slur. You got the burbers. I do? No, I. you just had one. It's just a comment. But anyway, yes, the fantasy wargaming you were saying. It uh, was so badly hampered by awkwardness of organization and technical work uh, that it really crushed its ability to prosper. Okay, yeah. it, it became almost infamous as the uh, unusable book. Uh, with the extremely awkward cover <laughs> to explain to your parents. Yeah, the, the three <laughs> things I would say the takeaways is the herbs could be easily salvaged for your D&D game right in there with effects. The historical lessons were fantastic. The wargaming uh, system was Solid. quick. I mean, it was, yeah, if you did the pre-work, it ran fast. But getting that pre-work done could be a little bit of a pain in the butt. But if you were a DM, you're used to that. And the last part is some of the illustrations on there are, they're downright evocative. And uh, that sword fighting scene is, is uh, one of my, still one of my favorites. I still, you know, when I look to the book, I just try to look at the pictures, not read any of the text. <laughs> <laughs> and his summation of the fantasy literature, the scene on there was surprisingly spot on for that time. And yes, uh, his fondness for uh, fantastic literature, uh, the uh, their version of an Appendix N was a good quality read and referenced a lot of terrific material that I think every gamer should have a peek at. So I, I cannot fault their intentions, but I do fault their execution. So, okay. Okay, hey, and uh, great uh, little ramble there. So thanks, Jason. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I guess we're going to get into it today. So what are we talking about today? Why? We've got a good topic lined up for you. We're going to do a retrospective and review of... The Slave Lord series, modules A1, 2, 3, and 4, which are Slave Pits of the Undercity, Secret of the Slaver's Stockade, Assault on the Area of the Slave Lords, and In the Dungeons of the Slave Lords. Right on. That's going to be the four. And we'll also talk about the Super Module A1 through 4 in a lesser extent at the end. Yes. But before that, let us have a foretelling of what is to come. Let us consult the augury. Oh, all right, yes, and no more fondling of the sheep guts. I've switched to oniromancy. Oh. I, I now read dreams. And I I had the most marvelous cinematic scope dream. I, I dreamed a dream of Arthurian mythos. And it was wonderful. Everybody oh. was wearing armor. It was badass. So, yes, we're going to be looking at classic films with Arthurian mythos. Oh, wow. Just our three. Been waiting for this one because yeah. Excalibur and. You know that's going to be number one with a bullet. We're yeah. not even going to. Like, we're not even going to hide that and like save it as a teaser for later. No, Excalibur will be discussed as, I think, the best example. Uh-huh. Yeah. Not historical example. No. But best example. The, the best example of the most entertainment uh, 
measure a certain measure of historical you know worth but right. but the most entertainment value for arthurian mythos and film all right right on so next week uh stick around or don't stick around tune in for <laughs> if you stick around well i pity you but uh yeah uh tune back in for us talking about the arthurian film night and here at the dicer screaming so catch that next week all right so turn to the let's get into it Okay, we launch with Slave Pits of the Undercity, Module oh, A1. Could we, could we talk a little bit about the history of this for some of the people who didn't know? Because, uh, you know, we, that is one of the things that uh, kind of gets, I think, shelved. Well, these are four different modules that were originally used in tournament play, much like we have mentioned on some past modules. Uh, tournament play, like in the Ghost Tower of Inverness, uh, was designed to be fast-paced, uh, to have minimal detail, to have standard results supplied for the DM so that they could quickly resolve and then score at the end of the game uh, based on the performance of a group of players. And with multiple groups of players playing under multiple DMs, the scores would be tallied up based on their speed, their degree of completion, uh, the you know wisdom of their actions, and, you know, their actual effectiveness as a team of players, uh, which terrific team building exercise. All of this was tallied up to the end. And of course, prizes were awarded to the best scoring group of players. Uh, so these tournament games were a unique factor of early convention. Yeah, this one comes from Gen Con 13, as it says. So yes. that would place it around 78, 79. I think the original Gen Con was Gen Con 4, but I could be wrong in it without consulting a now, search engine. The early releases of these modules began in 1980, uh, 81, and uh, thereabouts. I, I believe they had all been published within a couple of years. And they had converted the simplified tournament modules uh, of the A series into extended versions uh, that were more adaptable to regular campaign play. So you did not have to take it home and, okay, we can only do this tournament style where like, you know, every, this enemy does exactly eight points of damage every time it hits. Uh, the idea behind those little quirks uh, was to ensure that there was a uniformity of challenge uh, that all different participants in tournament play faced. Uh, so, like, the results of falling damage were pre-calculated. Mm. Uh, and we covered that in Ghost. Yeah, yeah. Was, uh, We've talked about it before, but yeah, but to recap for the, they for the audience at home. They expanded the material radically, uh, adding a lot of wonderful background uh, to each of the modules. A lot more purpose and meaning. Uh, and they rapidly turned into, since they were all targeted at adventures for characters between levels 4 and 7, they were frequently and intentionally run as a campaign series. So when your characters hit about 4th level, or maybe you know 5th, 6th-ish, uh, they were ready to undertake uh, this battle against the slave lords that leads them from city to, you know, a wilderness uh, to uh, evil lair 
and then desperate struggle for survival. Uh, <laughs> and it became, a, I, I think, one of my favorite challenging moments for players. I, I enjoyed this. I have DM'd this series many times, and I think it's already pretty well known that A4 well, was listed as one of my personal all-time favorite modules when we reviewed, you know, each of our personal all-time favorite campaign setting campaign module. Mm -hmm. uh, one of mine was A4 in the dungeons of the Slave Lords. But, okay, now we focus on A1 first. Yeah, this one was by uh, Zeb Cook, uh, David Cook. Um, yeah, he was, uh, this was one of the outings, and it's my personal favorite, just from the cover alone. I like the uh, Aspis in there, and uh, mostly because they they had a miniature set, uh, Grenadier's Solid Gold Line, oh, and they came with two Aspis, and I was like, man, that, that was really cool, and I thought that, like, they made a really great kind of, uh, not a homicidal maniac type adversary, but yeah. a tough... Uh, adversary six hit dice and with a hive mind and quick communications that could rap rapidly adapt to a very well prepared party which made them an excellent foe however they just feature in this one they're not the primary villain they're just kind of there um, you discover them halfway through I think yeah I mean in, uh, to describe them as villains would be a little inaccurate they're more like uh, neutral mercenaries but I mean certainly if you're invading their turf they're hostile uh, the Aspis were broken down between uh, drones and warriors. Right. Uh, and the warriors, you know, the Aspis being multi-limbed and insectoid in nature, uh, could wield two weapons and two shields or mm -hmm. multiple weapons, you know. Yeah, they got a multiple attacks, which made them for a mid-range party quite a challenge to go through. You just couldn't easily navigate through them like a small group of orcs that had hold it up in an lair. Yeah, but anyway, to, why don't we start out with reading the blurb there on the module to start us out. It is time to put a stop to the marauders. For years, the coastal towns have been burned and looted by the forces of evil. You and your fellow adventurers have been recruited to root out and to destroy the source of these raids. But beware, hundreds of good men and women have been taken by the slavers and have never been seen or heard from again. Yeah, that's a great intro to this series, and this is where you get started. And Slave Pits of the Undercity, it's basically uh, the wreckage of a former city uh, that is now being used as like a transit hub where the slavers take the people that they have captured from along the coastline and the, the local towns and villages, and they herd them to this place, and they're processed and then shipped out from there. This is the holding zone before a ship comes and takes them away. Uh, and it is principally uh, for the purpose of, you know, containment. Uh, <laughs> however, it is well guarded. So, oh, yeah. uh, simply, in pretty much throughout this entire series, the entire A series has one thing in common. Uh, stealth will avail you well. Uh, full frontal assaults and things like that just generally not a good idea. They don't reap productive results. Uh, and well, I, especially with the in the tournament edition where you have pre-generated characters, you have a diversity of skills and talents, but none of them lend themselves to out frontal assaults. Yeah. If you attack blindly and 
And of course, a lot of the instructions are if you just attack mindlessly or just blunder right in, you're not going to get very far in this series. Yeah, these are, there are tactical guidelines laid out. Uh, it, there are double blinds and bluffs, you know, the false slaver's lair and, uh, you know, the ruined chapel and temple chambers. Oh yeah, the temple groom's one of my favorite scenes. Yes. Jeff D. illustration in there, if you know what I'm talking about. Now, uh, the Aspis uh, may guard the you know lower levels, but uh, a lot of orcs and half-orcs occupy the upper layers and are the principal workers, leaders, bosses, uh, and guards. Uh, this is not to say that there aren't some other interesting encounters, like the giant sundew, uh, but... Even the plants are trying to kill you in D&D. Yeah, I know. D&D has a marvelous knack for that. It's like everybody reads like, hey, a sundew is a carnivorous flower. Let's turn that into a monster encounter. And this is one of the original modules with the classic line we love to utter, a sewer runs through it. Yes. There is a, a undercity area that, with a, a sewer that you have to traverse, which initially seems like you may be able to get away like up on the edges of it, but thanks to... Uh, you know, poorly supported wooden bridges and <laughs> crumbling stone, you have wonderful opportunities to literally douse your players in sewage uh, and really mess with their, you know, their, their general sense of well-being can be harmed by this module. But that is A1, and it is a strong yeah, uh, introductory module to this series. And uh, typically you either in tournament, tournament play or just playing the module singly, you would end up moving to the next one and finding out that the slave lords where they have the secret of the slaver stockade yeah now with a2 uh, you're given these wonderful hints in the super module version uh, where they're all interconnected and the clues to the next module are included at the end of each adventure uh, so as you end a1 you find the clues to go to a2 and uh, the opener for A2 was, The battle against the slavers continues. You and your fellow adventurers have defeated the slavers of Highport. But you have learned of the existence of another slaver stronghold, and you have decided to continue the attack. But beware, only the most fearless of adventurers could challenge the slavers on their own ground, and live to tell of it. And here again you see the nice cover by uh, Rolsoff, and uh, love the paladin there. Oh, yeah, I mean, and he's unabashedly paladinly. I mean, he does, you know, you know you, there's nothing on him that specifically says, I'm a paladin, but it looks like noble knight, like crazy. Yeah, know. and that's what you're aiming for at this point. But yeah, really good. And of course, the, pal, the, uh, the rogue is holding the paladin back. Like, Shh. Not yet, not yet. <laughs> uh, now, before sure, we no. get too far, I wanted to just want to interject one small thing. Yeah, here. go for as, it. Um, as much as Mike loves these modules, I think there's another thing that we got to hit on here, and this is a personal note, so I'm just going to take it aside. Mike put in my Grubby Myths a copy of the Guardians of Flame during the first of this, and if that didn't turn my <clears throat> belly, up, steal my nerves to fighting slavers and taking the fight to them, a righteous, more righteous crusade could not have been because punching slavers is like punching Nazis. It should be done often and liberally. So yeah. these guys are horrendous people. They they deal in human misery. They're just not like the uh, stock and trade of slavery for uh, 
yeah, uh, society. These are actually practicing chattel slavery, profiting off human misery, which was the key point of Guardians of the Flame series, is that yeah, freedom was about uh, just everybody deciding their own future and having a stake in it. And that appealed to me at this time, and boy, did this module and him giving me this book really set my... Oh, the yeah. iron in my belly for just taking the fight to them. I was relentless. 85, 86, you know, to, to have both uh, Carl Rosenberg's Guardians of the Flame Joel. series. Or Joel Rosenberg's. Yeah, uh, Joel. Uh, Joel Rosenberg's Guardians of the Flame series and the, you know, like, Slaver series for D&D. They went together like fine wine and, like, aged cheeses, okay? It just was a perfect pairing. So, uh, we were primed for this. And the best part is that uh, many people complain that, uh, you know, you have humanoids as this automatic foil and that, you know, they're just generic baddies despite being thinking, feeling creatures. Uh, you know, they're not really doing anything wrong. You go into an orc slayer and you just start murdering orcs because they're orcs and, you know, like, it, it's just mean, man. Okay, here's a series where, yeah, there is a total reason you're doing this. They're... They're unabashedly evil. They do not value human life or well-being. Uh, and, you know, it's a combination, an amalgam of humans and humanoids working together to do evil things. Uh, you're not killing things because they're not human. You're killing things because they are doing terrible things to people. And some of the enemies that you have to kill are also human. Yeah, ultimately you are on kind of a murder fest, but you don't have to murder your way through the entire series. As a matter of fact, as Mike makes the excellent point, stealth is valued, and just like on the cover, holding the paladin back, which was pretty much me. <laughs> All right, play it cool. Play it cool, buddy. Gotcha, gotcha. But this is by Harold Johnson and with Tom Moldvay helping out here, so... Yeah, the second module. I mean, these were different authors for everyone, as uh, Randy mentioned. And al although the simplified versions were used for tournaments, the more complicated versions, uh, this being arguably, I think, of the four modules, the most complicated. Yes. Uh, I know it's strange that the end module is not the most complicated one. Uh, the end module, as I have mentioned before, is challenging in its own ways. But this... The tactical requirements for a party is just brutal. Uh, a full frontal assault, you can do it, but you will almost certainly be repelled. And every encounter within the walls of the stockade will be that much harder, with all creatures alert, aware, and at the ready. And plus the reinforcements will be called for in short order, so yeah. it puts the time limit even further. You will not be strain. fighting six different rooms with like four opponents per room. You will be fighting all 24 opponents at zone one. You know, just they... Yeah, and if they get the alert off, it's also, I believe in the super module, like you only have a period of a day or two before reinforcements will come and utterly wipe everybody out. Yeah, there is no hope of survival if you are uh, detected and refuse to act quickly. So, yeah, getting into this one, this is... They a have a strategy di discussion right at the beginning of this module. But right. Yeah, th that's where I was going to go. So, yeah, go ahead, bud. Oh. Well, then, uh, they also list the leaders. Uh, the evil... Fighter Mage, Elf Marquesa, uh, the huge human male fighter, 
Icar, commander of the, the garrison. Uh, the executioner, who is the commander's friend and lieutenant. Uh, and he is an ogre who... They're drinking buddies. Yeah, I mean, this is his buddy, the executioner, an ogre with a, you know, special designed bastard sword that disarms people. Uh, and of course, Marquesa's assistant and apprentice, Gouliet. Yeah. And uh, Blackthorn, the representative of the slave lords, an actual ogre magi who mm-hmm. prefers the shape of, uh, you know, he likes to, you know, polymorph into a, you know, human looking person uh, that is, you know, kind of a little ghoulish and awkward, you know, looks like. Think Lurch nice crossed with Uncle Fester. Yeah, very Uncle Fester. That is exactly what I was, I was looking for, man. But yeah, an ogre magi is no joke. Uh, even for a mm-hmm. band of sixth levelers, uh, can really mess up your day. So there are some premium opponents here, uh, but there is a weakness in the defenses, and this was a great learning point that I, I think uh, Randy and I discussed shortly before the show. I want you to pick up on that. One. Oh yeah. Um, so outside, if the players take time to reconnoiter the place, and uh, of course. All this preparation for tactical is because you're supposed to present this. This is a stronghold of the slavers themselves. Typically, when they do have a fortification, it's in a remote area and it's in a vastness so they can spot what's coming and either call for reinforcements or prepare for a long siege with reinforcements relieving them soon. So, attacking them has to be swift and quick. So, smart players will send somebody out to reconnoiter the place and keen players will start to notice maybe there's some tracks near a well and that well leads down into the bottom and almost of the uh, dungeon and gets you in quickly and quietly thus circumventing a lot of the preparation for the dm and i believe that almost everybody who plays through this and learns that valuable lesson then starts to learn one of the key elements of military intelligence is the more information together the more powerful you become because now you can start to exploit the weakness. And yes, they have a secret escape tunnel in the well, which could be a trope from Scooby-Doo movies or TV shows. (laughs) But in this case, getting the players onto this, almost everybody who learns or goes through this and learns that keeps that lesson forever close because it makes this module a lot easier. But of course, let the players discover it themselves. Yes, it is. Ultimately, I mean, I don't feel like DMs are responsible for like nursing the players through things. You let you give them the information, you let them make the judgment call. Yeah, you can then, put some breadcrumbs out to yeah. get them going, but uh, suggestion is nice, but railroading them so that they don't take any risks. Uh, oh yeah, molly yeah, coddling is them. yeah, just molly coddling them. No, no, let them fail, and they can always try it again. Yeah, so once you get into the midst of it, you even if you take the well, you're going to get in pretty deep, but uh, as Mike said, you pull a cork on this one, it'll eventually come out that there will be an alarm raised, no matter how stealthy or well-prepared the players are. And then you're going to have the main fight, which was with Icar, Blackthorn, and Marquesa. Hopefully not all at once, because that's oh. bad. No, that is super bad. Uh, but but Marquesa has a special play- place in my dark heart, because if anybody needs to be strung up... Oh, experiments and torture upon captives. Okay, uh... I want to mention a feature of all four modules, which new monsters were introduced in every one. Uh, one of, I think, 
my my belief that there was a procedure here where new module new monsters were introduced to each module uh, was that in tournament play you want to present players with challenges they have not had before yep they can uh, read all the manuals but they're not prepared for a monster they've never seen before exactly you have many players who memorized the text from the monster manual they knew every creature's flaw okay werewolves i need silver uh, vampires i need a wooden stake you know uh, they had all their plans laid out in advance. So in a tournament module, at least one and or two challenges would be something no one had ever experienced before. And in the previous module, it was the Storoper uh, and the Aspis drones. Mm -hmm. Whereas here is a creature called the Cloaker. Oh, and oh yeah, the, the alien Cloaker. And also the Boggle. Yeah, the Boggle was pretty new to players too. Uh, you know, the slippery little... Gollum-like thing. You did bad. Yeah, it looks like Gollum. Uh, but robust treasure for the survivors. There are some unique challenges here involving deceptive, uh, like a, a haunt mm -hmm. that is not like a standard ghost or anything like that. Not nearly as fatal. Mm -hmm. But if you think it's a ghost and your players are scared crapless, rightly so, uh, they behave like that. So they're presented with a number of tricks, traps, and challenges. Uh, and I always loved Icar. You love to hate Marquesa. I love to hate Icar uh, because he was a blind fighter. He wore a helmet yep. that covered the eyes completely. He was blind and was trained to fight with a sword. This is D&D's oldest Zatoichi reference. Yeah, and he also had a dang ring of fire resistance and stood into a pit of in the fire pits in the kitchen. Yes, uh, grabbing gobbets of like hot fat and hurls them at the players, player characters, uh, or whomever is. He's yeah, and if you fight. get it, you got to get close enough to hit them, you take fire damage. Yeah, so you literally got to go, you know, dances with burning coals with this guy to take him out. <laughs> Classic stuff, uh, but it's one of the most challenging modules of this series by far because a mistake by the player characters can quickly turn fatal uh, and lead to TPK City. And... So, yeah, it could lead yeah. to a TPK, but it could also, you know, lead to their capture because Marquesa likes to experiment on people. And so even if they get captured, there's kind of like a, a transition, but either way afterwards, once you overcome the challenge of the slaver stockade now you can get right on to the assault which yeah. is called a3 assault on the area of the slave lords uh, now the intro on this goes into the dragon's grab mountains hot on the trail of the marauding slavers you and your fellow adventurers plunge deep into the hostile hills spurred on by your past success you now seek the heart of the slaver conspiracy. But hurry, you must move quickly before the slavers recover from your previous forays and attacks. Huh. Yep, and this coincides with the time limit they're in. Now this one is by Alan Hammock. Yes. So uh, he was one of the TSR Illuminaries alumni, I guess, at the time. Uh, editor and staff writer for a couple years. But uh, yeah, his... Uh, his contribution to, is this module and it is quite the doozy yeah uh i mean first these are starting to ramp up now the se the second one 
can take players unprepared because if they just bumble into this one, like kind of like the first one, you can still kind of mess around a little bit and still just basically fight your way through it. Yeah. And the second one, okay, not you, so much. You better be. T- but this one, the third one, you should have learned all the lessons now, and this is where it ramps up again. Yeah, I mean, you know, you want to do a full frontal assault in uh, A2, you better be hucking fireballs like crazy. I, I hope that party has fantastic ammunition and spell backup, because that is no easy nut to crack. This, we return to a slightly more normative, you know, phased encounter-by-encounter zone uh, that starts with a search of the Drakensgrab Hills, where you're looking for tunnels that will ultimately lead you to the secretive zone inside the, the hill country there, where a city of slavers is tucked away. Not a mere stronghold or processing center, uh, but an actual fortified town, uh, which, you know, once you get in there, it's probably much easier to pass as people who have some business being there. Very few people, you know, walk into it that don't belong there. And they certainly have enough traffic from time to time that, you know, a few outsiders isn't going to be viewed as completely askance. But getting there is a tricky part. And the intro of the module is the difficult caves of Drakensgrab, uh, where they have set up some challenging rooms. Oh, no, this is the one with the Storoper. Oh, yeah. The Aspis Thrones were in A1. The Storoper was in this module. You know, I thought that, but I was just like, maybe I'm misremembering it. Yeah, they they tucked in a lot of uh, weird encounters that I, I believe some people will find them reminiscent of White Plume Mountains. Yep, a lot of tricks and, tricks and traps. Yep. Like the Curtain of Blue Fire room where like this magnetic blue fire. That, oh yeah, that's crazy uh, stuff. You know, crackling through the air uh, and it's right above a pool of gunk. And you have to, you know, if the players are on their toes, they got to crawl through the gunk, which will coat them uh, so that they can pass through the magnetic blue fire without being affected by it. Uh, (laughs) However, you know, scraping all that gunk off of you while you're moving slow uh, (laughs) uh, is no uh, particular easy chore. So it's a time thief, you know, well, the players are either diminishing their situation by storming through the electrical uh, slash magnetic thing or they're bogged down and slowed down by the goop. So it's a trade-off, and I I thought it was a clever thing. But uh, there is a marvelous fight with one of the classic lessons of D&D. Illusionists are (laughs) D-bags. Illusionists are jerks. (laughs) uh, If you want to learn a wonderful lesson about how to make good use of an illusionist with like just a a handful of allies and some trickery. Uh, Module A3 provides that encounter at the end of the caves section. Yeah, but a lot of things with illusions, you know, there's saving throws involved. And welcome to the arcane eye has settled its gaze upon you once again, illuminating small projects across the geekosphere of comics, podcasts, gaming, and all sorts of goodies. Yes, and today we're looking at good and evil. And that is evil with 
an LE attached to the end of it. Standard spelling for good, but good and, uh, or, you know, good ampersand evil with an extra LE at the end. Uh, this is the brainchild of Mike Perez and Matt Chadwick. Uh, they have already released their first wonderful comic, uh, and they are just now kicking off a Kickstarter uh, to work with a different artist for their second. Uh, I wanted to pick them because these are actually people we know. Hmm. Uh, and in particular, people I know personally. They are uh, natives here in the creek, uh, and we're very proud of them for having already executed uh, their first production in a timely fashion. I mean, they went from uh, completing the concept to, uh, you know, actually preparing the merchandise and having it out. Uh, the last time they did this, it was like a 90-day process. Just boom, boom, boom. They got it done. And so I, I have great hopes for this Kickstarter. They just enjoyed a fantastic uh, weekend at a major comic convention in Indiana, uh, or Indianapolis. So we congratulate them and we wish them well. All right. Peak Kickstarter. Well, and the duration of the Arcane Eye is expended and returns you once again back to your reality. But remember that you'll never know when the Arcane Eye will settle its gaze back on you. It's All right, so like getting it. back in there, at the end of that, you get uh, presumably taken to the, or make it through that whole tricks and traps. Yes, the real tunnel to the hidden city of Suderham. Uh, and Suderham, uh, marvelous note on the side, uh, they require their own type of money. They mint their own money, <laughs> and you have to purchase their money from a money changer in order to, you know, buy goods and or services in town. You would expect no less from a bunch of jerks like these slave owners. But yeah, yeah there's a nice city, there's some uh, places to explore, so it becomes now an urban adventure, which can take a little bit more time. And eventually you want to try to find your way towards the inner city of the slavers. And there's several maps and handouts. There are secretive routes into the slavers' stronghold of varying types. Uh, and there are risks associated with choosing the wrong one. I mean, should you mention this to the wrong people or bribe the wrong person who is too loyal, uh, you could be found out. This could be very problematic for the players. Uh, but, uh, you know, you've either found the you know, traditional uh, passageway that's hidden in a body house, uh, or accidentally found the passage from the abandoned residence. Uh, in any case, the catacombs which lead to the actual lair and council chambers of the slave lords. Uh, <laughs> classic material, killer mimics, hellhounds, minotaurs. Yeah, they got, they run the gamut of the various monsters you can fight. And of course, it ends with a climactic fight with the slave lords themselves. So no matter how well it goes, and even if the players lose, don't worry, they'll raise you from the dead. But this was when back when raised the dead didn't have consent. You were just forced to be raised from the dead. Yeah, you, you didn't have to want to be raised from the dead. You were just raised. So so yeah, so they could be a thing. But they, the way they would expend it on you tells you what animosity they hold towards you. Yeah, that if you found them, now they've noticed you and they very much care about you. Know, like, we need answers. 
how did these people get this far and who is like instructing them to do this uh, the end of this if if you choose you can end the campaign there uh, and yep you kill the slavers and then you're off yeah but in both the tournament version and the non-tournament version they offer you the outcome of being captured uh, either by wall of force and a dropping stone wall behind you uh, that then somebody uses a little hidden portal to drop in a vial of green gas that knocks Yeah, there's no save gas, but yeah, a little contrivance there that does tend to wrinkle some players. They did cause them, like, wait, if they can cast Wall of Force and Wall of Stone that fast and that quick, why? But we don't, it, that's what happens when you look too long at something. So just let it go. This is totally happening. And let's get on to the next one, which is 8 4, which, yeah, now Mike likes this one, and there's a reason why. Because it is the truest test, I think, of all players' metal. Because all your fancy gear, all your stuff that you've been holding on to is taken away from you. So I'll let him... Trapped in the dungeons of the Slave Lords, the hardy adventurers must find a way out, with only their wits and courage to help them. But can they do it before everything is destroyed by the dreaded Earth Dragon? Whoa. Yeah. So yeah, so this is by Lauren Schick. And this is probably the high end, so you're around about 7th level, and yeah, you're going to need it. Because you pretty much start naked. Yeah, the, the party has been interrogated, beaten, tortured, starved. Uh, the spellcasters have no spells available to them. Uh, everybody is in terrible shape. And this has been the state of affairs since the end of the previous module. Uh, and so the the savagely abused player characters who are you know diminished in well-being are finally uh, done away with they're dumped into the pits uh, the wait a minute Hans Zimmer is starting to play in the background of Rise from go ahead <laughs> uh, they are simply hucked into a dungeon labyrinth that nobody has ever emerged from alive so, <laughs> uh, the goal here is, uh, well, actually, the opening, like, area one, entrance to fear. <laughs> uh, just wonderful. Now, uh, the characters basically wake up at the bottom of a long, deep pit with no hope of climbing back out, uh, and... You know, nothing in the way of equipment. You know, they're just there in a loincloth. And... Oh, you're being generous. They make a sling out of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is one of the options. Uh, very little in the way of supplies is left. However, someone, an ally of theirs, some hidden, generous person, somebody who was in the employ of the same people who yeah. sent them after, uh, has dropped a single bag of hastily assembled supplies. Uh, just a, a few useful things, including magic scrolls. Uh, and it says, one of them reads, This is the best I could do to help. May your gods be with you. If you escape, your equipment is being held on the Slave Lord's private boat, the Water Dragon, at the Suderham Docks. Signed, your friend from the gate. Uh, now, <laughs> uh, with, with no real weapons to speak of anywhere about, uh, they then really have to depend on people with infravision to help at first, uh, if anybody has it, or... 
Oh yeah, well you'll find out soon enough. Just tell them it's dark. Yeah. The room is dark. I have dark vision. Exactly. Yeah. So everybody will. Tell will... You. Uh, but that's going to be the only person who isn't fighting with a penalty. So, yeah, the win for the DM. You know when. Yep. It it makes the uh, the monsters they throw at you uh, much more challenging. But again, uh, this could be all academic if you had a monk with you. Now this is where you get into real danger. Like this is the moment where a monk becomes the true hero of the party. Like the guy who you're like. Yeah, okay, you can punch, like, uh, three times per two rounds, and you do, like, two to five points of damage. Big deal. Like you're, you're Oh, like, yeah, big deal now, huh? Well, down here... <laughs> uh, it's like when Zatoichi puts the lights out. You know, it's like everybody's... We're all equal now. We're all blind now. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of traps and challenges, and, you know, it's definitely going to test the party's metal at this point, but... You With a to, little bit of carefulness and yeah, even, resolve, you can make it through it. Even but, the ingredients of the monsters, like the, the parts of their carcasses, become useful tools for the Right, and also players. having... The other thing is, this puts the players in a spot that normally they don't take, which is run away. And also, you know, picking and choosing their fights. But one of the trippiest parts of this is the myconids that are put in here. Now, again, with the series of... the. But it's the mushroom folk, and if you know a certain cult movie that I'm talking about, yeah. But this one is pretty trippy, and um, they're not actually super hostile either. I mean, they, they initially, can be. yeah, initially they are, but you can make some uh, once you prove that you're a threat, they will uh, agree just to get you the heck out of there to help you out, and you can find a few allies here, and this is one of them. Where again, you might not normally think so, but hey, then you find out that they hang out and they all communally trip out by generating spores and yeah, listening to <laughs> Emerson Lake at Palmer at really loud levels. <laughs> I love that you mentioned Emerson Lake and Palmer. Uh, Brain uh, salad surgery. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, well worth mentioning is that there is a timer on this uh, mm. in both the tournament and honestly I think it should be included in the always included in the non-tournament version very important the earth dragon is the volcano uh, in which you are effectively like residing in the side tunnels here uh, and that is where this dungeon is uh, it's full of critters and nobody ever makes out alive unequipped but if your heroes are mighty enough they can escape this, but the whole time they're doing that, the volcano is waiting to go. Yeah, you're supposed to give clues through it, a little bit more intense earthquakes, stuff, ball, rocks fall, not everybody dies. Up until that time, and then you can kind of get out, and then there's some optional encounters you can uh, spice it up with, but then it's escape from the island, and there you have... Yeah, the, a mad dash for the docks as everybody's screaming to get out. It's the last ship in town, and yep, you guess it right there. Also going for it about the same time is the well-equipped slavers, the survivors. But you could also throw the whole gamut at you, at them. But I think that would be kind of cruel at this point. So yeah, you have your loot from the you know underground world, which included they did spice. Yeah, they gave you a few items to help the, you out. Some marvelous potions that are available if you negotiate properly for them. Yeah, the myconans are great cra crafters of potions. Yeah, I mean you know invisibility, speed, extra. Just uh, be aware of the after effects. 
Well, <laughs> the wall, did the walls just everything just kind of go whoa, 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 to you? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I did. All right, man. Those Mycona potions. A body buzz, man. Uh, what the hey? Uh, no, uh, you know. But yeah, you have uh, the the uh, team B of slave lords, which they're a little lessened in power, but yeah, they're still formidable. And um, if you're not careful, uh, then you can uh, very quickly fall in uh, fall to them, uh, including a Scarlet Brotherhood monk. With, uh, a little kick in his butt, but a half orc assassin uh, and uh, like a a. Human illusionist uh, and a drow fighter cleric. Yeah, uh, representing that. And so. The evil high priest Stallman Klim. Stallman? Mm. And some weirdo illusionist. Some weird beard. Yep, Lamonston. Um, yeah, so you fight these guys, get your loot back, get on the ship, and you're out, and that concludes the adventure. But does it? Yeah, this is where we mentioned the whole interlude to. The Slave Lords to the Queen of Demon Web Pits, Super Mondral, which includes the G1 and D series, as well as Q. And we'll be covering that in a future episode, so stick around for that. But yeah, presumably the Super Mondral is a little bit tighter in its uh, its construction. I mean, there was a certain point of the time in the 80s where people f- felt that to get something they didn't have to buy it all at once. They could buy it in pieces to see if they liked it. And I think that's what A1, 2, and 3, and 4 were. Some people could pick up one or two of the adventures and just try it out, and if they liked it, get the other ones. But these were really meant to go together, so I think that uh, the super module Scourge of the Slave Lords, which had uh, interludes between each one and had a tighter narrative to weave them together, worked yeah. better. And also links with the Temple of Elemental Evil making a really super campaign. Like you could start with Temple of Elemental Evil, go to the Slave Lords, and then go to Against the Giants Drow. That's what I love about these series is that it happened holistically. Yeah, it was not a plan. It was not a plan and then it became a plan. They were like, hey, people are already doing this. Why don't we just follow suit and publish it as a series of super modules? Like they're interconnected and each phase will you know, launch right into the next one. Absolutely. Uh, it was the company basically responding to what people did. So I, I gotta love it. All right. But hey, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we're going to go some hasty bananas on you and uh, cast off as we're running short on time. But we appreciate you listening and, of course, supporting us, as well as just keep all the comments coming on uh, Twitter, Facebook, as well as leaving us comments here on the Anchor app, or whatever uh, podcasting listening platform you use. So we appreciate it as always. Hey, we're at 17,000 total plays. So, wow, we never even thought... I thought we'd be lucky in three years to get 10,000. We're at 17,000. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I was thinking that we would be closer to 17. So... <laughs> well, there you go. Without the zeros, but... Yeah, uh, I was just 17. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah true. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 17,000. That, Thank you so much. Yeah, we're closing in on that 20,000 mark. So uh, definitely be doing some giveaways when that happens. So stay tuned for that. Oh, very. But anyway, thanks a lot. Uh, the Arcane Eye, the Augury, and of course, all our other little shenanigans. Zapro Dowser approves of our shenanigans. 
by the way. <laughs> oh, uh, this is one of well, this is one of our favorite modules, and it's a classic for a reason. It really tests players in different ways, and this is the prime of the tournament modules. That although they're not well uh, woven together because each one was by a different author, it was kind of a hodgepodge sort of put together thing. Each one doing their own thing, so each one has a different flavor. But I think that in the end. That lenses. made for an exciting series. Basically. Yeah, you didn't know what to expect next. Like, pretty much the Temple of Elemental Evil is pretty much has the same tone throughout. And it can get a little dry. This one really breaks it up, and I like that. So Yeah, me too. Me All too. right. But it's a hey, great, uh, great classic and well worth covering. Absolutely. So we're going to wrap it up here and put a bow on it. So we thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you next time. So in the meantime, may, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.